Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to start up in verse 17 today, where we left off last week. And if you're not paying attention or you're new here, uh, we are going through verse by verse uh, through the book of Romans. Uh, This book um, is actually a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Rome. And it's all about the gospel, which means good news. But before he gets to the good news, Paul spends several chapters on the bad news. The bad news that we are all sinners and that we're all guilty before God. Last week, Paul explained why the Gentile or the non-Jew might think that they were innocent, that they have an excuse because they didn't have the knowledge of God or they didn't have the knowledge of God's law. Therefore, the Gentile might say, well, how can God judge me of my sin when I didn't know the Bible? Paul gave four reasons why they are still guilty. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it taught us that creation reveals God to us. And so by simply looking around at the world and the stars and everything around us, we can see that there is a creator, that there is a God, and therefore we should obey him. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, we saw that our judgment of others indicates that we have knowledge of laws written on our hearts. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 teaches us that not knowing the law doesn't excuse us. And then finally in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, we saw that our conscience, the fact that we have that um, inner voice that tells us, I shouldn't be doing this, or I feel guilty now, that implies that we have the law written on our hearts. And therefore, even the Gentile, even the non-religious person is inexcusable. They too are guilty before God, and their only hope is to receive Jesus' gift of salvation that he provided through the cross. But what about the Jews? What about the religious people? Are they excused from guilt and judgment? That's our topic for today. And so we pick up in Romans chapter 2, in verses 17 through 29, we read about four false hopes of the Jews. Verse 17, Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew. Now, I know it's not much, but we're going to pause right there for just a moment here because Paul is now focusing in on the Jews, the Jews who knew that they were a special people chosen by God. Look at how God describes Israel, the Jews, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15. It says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. And then in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, God said, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, if you're a a Jew, you can just feel the warm fuzzies, right, with those verses. You just feel the specialness of being a Jew. And it's true, God did choose them. I mentioned we're going to look at four false hopes of the Jews, and if you want to take notes in your note sheet, here's the first one. Their heritage. Their heritage. 
You see, the Jews knew that they were chosen and they were special in God's eyes. And so they believed God would never send a Jew to hell. They thought hell was only for non-Jews. But they seemed to forget other verses, like this one in Deuteronomy chapter 9, starting in verse 5, where God says to Israel, It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. So in giving Israel the promised land, God says, it's not because you're awesome, this is why, but because of the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked as in stubborn. Now, if the Jews are anything like me in my heart, I would hear that and I would say, well, come on, I'm not that bad, right? But look at the next verse. Verse 7, God says, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. I think the Jews felt a little bit less special with those verses. But they were true. Yes, they were special and chosen by God, but they're also still sinners. They were far from perfect. And so back to our text in Romans chapter 2, Paul's going to describe why the good Jew might feel like they're above the law or above guilt and above judgment. And so verse 17 again in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. You see, the Jews believed that they were innocent because they knew God's word. Now, the Bible is separated in the two major sections. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has all the books that were written before Jesus came, and the New Testament are all the books written after Jesus came. Many of the Jews, well, the Jews studied all of the Old Testament, but many of the Jews even memorized large portions of the Old Testament. And the best of the Jews, the Pharisees, they memorized the entire Old Testament, which is crazy. And you can look in your table of index to see how many books that is that they had memorized. It's amazing. And so they had all this knowledge of the Old Testament. And this was their next false hope. It was their knowledge. Their knowledge. Specifically their knowledge of the Word, but their knowledge of the Word and of God. They could boast in their knowledge. But their knowledge of God's Word didn't excuse them from guilt. In fact, it actually held them to a higher standard. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from much will be required." And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so because of their knowledge, 
God expected better obedience from the Jews. But that's not what he got. Paul continues describing the Jews' confidence in verse 19, where he says, And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And so the Jew again is tempted to be puffed up in their knowledge of God's word, confident that they're not guilty. In fact, we have writings from the first and second century between a Jewish leader of the day and a Christian. And they're writing back and forth, talking about the gospel. And in those writings, we have written down that this Jew of the first century, he believed that any descendant of Abraham, any Jew, any Israelite, would go to heaven, even if they be sinners, faithless, and disobedient towards God. They thought it was all about being a Jew, but it was all a false hope. Paul goes on in verse 21, and he says, You, therefore, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So Paul points out the potential hypocrisy that a Jew might teach others the law while not obeying the law himself. Verse 21 continues and Paul says, You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, Do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Essentially, Paul says to the Jews, I know that you know the law. You have amazing knowledge, but do you obey it? Do you obey the law? And this brings up another false hope that the Jews had. It was their morality. Their morality. The Jews took the law, which was supposed to show that we all fall short, right? That standard of perfection. And they took God's law and they look up and instead of comparing themselves with God and seeing they fall short, they took that standard and they measured themselves versus other people. And they said, well, I don't fall as short as other people do. I certainly don't fall as short as the Gentiles do. And so they used the law to puff themselves up. They used the law to make them feel good about themselves. The Jews were guilty of log-eye disease. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 3, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank or a log is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus' teaching here is all about judge yourself first, then judge others. But the Jews missed that. They were really good at taking the law, knowing the law, and applying the law, but only to other people, not to themselves. And so Paul rebukes the Jews in the very next verse, in Romans 2, verse 24. Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. That phrase, as it is written, 
just means that Paul's quoting from the Old Testament here. And this rebuke meant much more than we see on the surface. So I want to take some time to understand what Paul is saying here. If you were a Jew that knew the Old Testament, you would know exactly what he's referring to here. So again, this is a quote from the Old Testament. God had made a special covenant with Israel, with the nation of Israel. It essentially said, I, God, will bless you, Israel, as long as you obey me. But if you stop obeying me, then I'm going to remove my blessing. I'm going to remove my protection. I'm going to let your enemies around you conquer you and carry you off into captivity. Well, as time went on, the Israelites continued to disobey the Lord. They began to worship idols. And so first, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria. At this time in Israel's history, they were actually split. Israel was two separate nations. The northern nation was called Israel, and they were the first to go, conquered by the Assyrians and carried away as captives. Later on, the rest of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, was conquered by Babylon, and they were carried away in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. That's where Daniel got carried up away, away to. Now, around this time, look at what God said through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. God's describing what has happened. Israel worshipped idols. They disobeyed. And so God removed his blessing. Israel was conquered by their enemies, and they were carried away as captives. But then God continues in verse 20. He says, When they came to the nations, when they were carried away, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they, the nations, said of them, the Jews, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. You see, all the other nations, they knew that Israel worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when they saw Israel conquered, defeated by other nations that worshipped other gods, it was just their natural understanding, well, our gods must be stronger than your God. That's the problem. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he just wasn't strong enough to protect his people. He's not as strong as our gods are. And so the Jews disobeyed God, they were scattered, and as a result of them being scattered from their homeland, God's name was profaned or blasphemed among the nations. And this is what Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 2, that the Jews have once again disobeyed God. They've known the law, but they don't follow the law. And as a result, their disobedience blasphemed God's name among the Gentiles. The Jews were supposed to proclaim God, but instead they were blaspheming His name 
because they didn't live up to the standard God called them to. And so Paul's rebuke here was meant to remind the Jews, don't be like your fathers. Don't be like the Jews of old. Now look at verse 25, Romans chapter 2. Paul says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. That's a big if there. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. This is the fourth false hope of the Jews, circumcision. They had so much hope in this sign. You see, circumcision was a sign of the covenant God had given to Israel. A sign of that promise. It identified the Jews as belonging to God. But it was an external sign that was supposed to show the internal relationship. And Paul points out here in verse 5, this external sign, it means nothing if it's not accompanied with an internal heart. Just like wearing a, a wedding ring, it doesn't mean anything if you don't love your spouse. It's just an external sign. Paul continues in verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and your circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Paul is saying obedience, not the sign of circumcision, but obedience in the heart shows who belongs to God. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is showing that God cares about the heart. Remember Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25. Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are some pretty harsh words, especially when we remember that the Pharisees were the cream of the crop of the day. They were the most religious, the most diligent to follow after God. And yet, Jesus says, on the outside, you look good, but God cares about your heart. You're not perfect. You're far from it. And so, God's heart in rebuking these Pharisees wasn't to condemn them, but it was to warn them before it was too late so that they could repent and change their heart before the Lord. And that's Paul's heart here in Romans 2. 
for the Jews. He doesn't want to simply convict them and make the Jews feel awful and horrible, but he wants to draw them to repentance, to turn their heart to the Lord and say, God, I need your forgiveness. And it is here that a Jew who's listening to Paul or reading this letter, a Jew might pose the question, well, what's the point? If my heritage and my knowledge and my circumcision don't save me, then what's the point of even being Jewish? What advantage do I have as being an Israelite? And Paul answers these questions in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We read about several objections and answers. Paul says in verse 1, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? And Paul answers, Much in every way chiefly because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Paul says the best advantage of being Jewish is you have the Word of God. You have the knowledge of who God is. Now, Paul already made it clear, knowing God's Word doesn't save us, but it's certainly a good head start. helps us to know who God is and who we are in His image. Paul continues in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? What if some of the Israelites didn't believe God or His Word? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? What if some of the Jews, though they had the Word of God, they were unfaithful to God? Would that ruin God's plan? Would that ruin His purpose? Would that cause God to change His mind and God Himself become unfaithful because God's now changing what He promised to do with the Jews? Paul answers in verse 4, Certainly not. God wouldn't change. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul says, even if every single person was a liar, they were all on this side of the debate, and God was on this side, God would still remain true. Because God is the definition of truth. And then Paul quotes David. If you look back at verse 4 there, you see part of that is in a quotation mark. That's because he's quoting David in the the Old Testament in the psalm, in Psalm 51, where David's writing the psalm, talking about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his sin of murder as he murdered Bathsheba's husband to try to cover up the whole mess. And David said in Psalm 51, verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, David confesses, I am only bad. I'm just a sinner through and through. But God, you are only good. God is perfect and blameless in all of his ways and all of his judgments. And David was pointing out that David's sin, even those horrible sins of adultery and murder, David says, all my sin did is proclaim God's glory of how much greater he is. Because I'm just a sinner. And David says, in my guilt... God, you are glorified because you're not guilty like I am. And that's Paul's point here in Romans 3. 
He says that no matter how sinful and wicked we are, it only magnifies how righteous and blameless God is by comparison. Our sin shows us how great God is. And that brings up another question. Look at verse 5. Paul says the Jew might ask, but if our unrighteousness, if our sin demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul says, I speak as a man. In other words, he says, this is a lame argument, right? He says, if my rottenness and my sin magnify God's righteousness and perfection, then why should I be judged and condemned? It's like saying, well, my darkness in my heart, it just makes Jesus' light shine brighter. You're welcome, God. I'll keep it up. I'm really good at it, right? And that's kind of the argument that, that Paul's presenting here. And Paul answers this objection in verse 6. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? It's a silly objection. And Paul mostly dismisses this objection. After all, how would you respond if your child comes home and they say, Mom, Dad, um, I stole your car and I crashed it. But don't worry, my actions just showed how great of a driver you are. So you don't need to punish me because your driving is top notch, right? How many of you would be like, well, I, I am a pretty good driver? No, you'd be like, save it, kid. You're grounded, right? Get in your room. And that's the whole idea here. God will judge the world. God will judge the darkness. And God will be just, He will be glorified, and He will be right in doing all of those things, even though the darkness of our own sin and wickedness do show how holy and pure God is. Paul finishes the objection in verse 8 with this. He says, And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come? We've all heard it, right? God loves to forgive us. He's a God of grace and mercy. And so, why don't we go sin more so that God can pour out more grace? We like grace, right? That sounds pretty good. So we're helping God out by continuing in our sin. Paul says, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So some were spreading these rumors about Paul. They hear Paul talk about God's grace. They hear Paul talk about God's mercy and how even the worst sinner... Remember, remember Paul was pretty bad, right? Killed a few people because they believed in Jesus. That was his main job. And now they're saying, man, Paul, he just wants us to continue in our sin so that grace may abound. Paul says, that's not what we're teaching. And those who say that, their condemnation is just. They're going to be judged for that. Paul says more about this idea in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. 
How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now it's true. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by our own works. We're not saved by religion. But when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He not only credits His righteousness to us, but He credits His death on the cross to us. We have died to our sin, to our flesh. Therefore, we should walk in newness of life. We're going to talk more about this when we get to Romans chapter 6. But for now, I want us to recognize this truth in your note sheet. If my life hasn't changed, I'm probably not saved. If my life hasn't changed, I'm probably not saved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If we say that we're a Christian, and yet our heart is not any different than it was before, then we're saying, well, I trusted in Jesus, but He hasn't changed my heart. Paul would say, let God be true and every man a liar. If you're in Jesus, if you are a Christian, then you are a new creation. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that a genuine Christian will not struggle in sin any longer. We do continue to struggle. But as we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. And you can imagine this battle waging in our hearts. Every day, every moment, where our flesh says, I really just want to live for myself. I want to kick Jesus off the throne of my heart and I want to live for me today. And the Holy Spirit says, don't do it. You're not going to be fulfilled. You're not going to be satisfied. I want to give you the fullness of life. And so we have that battle as genuine believers. But as Paul's warning us here through the text, He's telling us that if we say that we've put our trust in Jesus, we call ourselves a Christian, but our hearts haven't changed, we don't see the evidence of God making us, little by little, more like Him and less like our flesh, then we should really pause and we should humble ourselves. We should repent and turn to the Lord and say, God, I don't really see a big change in my heart, but God, I want there to be. God, I want to surrender my heart to You. And I want to trust in Your work on the cross to save me from my sin. And God will accept us. He'll take us where we're at. He'll fill us with His Holy Spirit and He'll begin to change us from the inside out. But notice, we put our faith in Jesus first then the change happens. And the change is from the inside out. Many of us get stuck and we fall because we say, well, man, I really want to put my faith in Jesus. I really want to be a Christian, but I really got some things I got to figure out first. I got some things I need to fix. I got some sins I'm in bondage to that I need to get rid of. Then I can, I can be a Christian. It won't work. You see, that's religion. That's trying to do it on your own strength. 
That's the reason Jesus came, is because we can't do it in our own strength. Jesus did the work on our behalf. As we look back at our note sheet here, we see these four false hopes of the Jews, the Jews, their heritage, their knowledge, their morals, and their circumcision. But we must be warned that we can be guilty of the very same things. And so I want to take some time to look at four false hopes of today. They're not that different. Here's the first one. Belief in God. Belief in God. People can be duped into thinking that believing God exists makes them right with God. But that's a false hope. There's somebody I know who has never, ever doubted God's existence. He's always known God is real. He's always known God was there. He always knew God created everything. His name is Satan. He's a jerk. Satan has never doubted God's existence. Do you think Satan's going to make it to heaven? Certainly not. And yet, sometimes we get stuck with this mindset, well, I believe God is real. That's great. James tells us in James 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, don't get me wrong. Believing in God, believing God is real, it's a great start. Right? It's necessary start for us to put our faith in Him and trust in Him as our Lord and our Savior. But if that's the only step that we've taken, or if that's the only step that our loved ones that we're praying for have taken, they believe God is real, they're no better off. Keep praying for Him. Because trusting that God is real is not the same thing as trusting in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Here's the next false hope of today. Biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge. Just like the Jews, we too can fall into the trap of putting our confidence of salvation in our knowledge of God's Word. I've read the whole Bible. Or I know all the stories from Sunday school. Or maybe I I went to Bible school. Or I've studied theology. Those are great things. I'm not trying to put those things down. But if our confidence is in those things, and we say, well, I'm going I'm to get into heaven because I've read the Bible, because I know it. I'm getting into heaven because I understand the theology. That's, that's still religion. That's still your works. Once again, we'd only be as good as Satan. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan? In one of those temptations, Satan quoted from Psalm 91, indicating that Satan knows his Bible. But again, that doesn't make Satan right. That doesn't make you and I right with the Lord. Knowing, reading, even memorizing Scripture cannot save us. It's a great start, but it's a false hope, if that's where our hope is. Here's the next one, morality. Just like the Jews, right? Morality. Can being good enough save us? Can we do enough good to outweigh our bad so that we'll still make it into heaven? After all, isn't hell just for the really bad people? 
like the murderers and the kidnappers? We read about a young man who struggled with this in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This guy wanted to go to heaven. And so he says, Jesus, what do I need to do? Verse 17, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. And so before Jesus even gets into this, he says, well, hold on real fast. Two things I need to point out. There's only one who is good, and that's God. And if you're calling me, Jesus, good, truly good, then you're calling me God. You're recognizing that I am God. And then Jesus continues in verse 17, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus starts off, okay, you want to you get into heaven, great, just keep all the commandments. And so verse 18, the man said to Jesus, well, which ones? I want to make sure that I've kept all of them. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We notice that Jesus takes all of these commandments straight from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And so, verse 20, the young man said to Jesus, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Can you just imagine that with me for a moment? This guy told Jesus that he never murdered or committed adultery. I'll give him that. Right? But then he said, I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've never dishonored his parents. I'd like mom and dad to testify before we go any further. Even more than that, he said that he had always loved his neighbor as himself. Meaning that he had never treated anybody wrong ever. All these things I have kept from my youth, he said to Jesus. What else do I still lack? If you're picturing this in your mind, he looks like this. Okay? He's feeling really good about himself. Oh, good. Jesus talked about all those laws that I'm really good at. Or at least I think I'm good at. I've convinced myself that I haven't broken any of these laws. But Jesus doesn't argue. Jesus simply says in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus was not saying, If we give everything to the poor and follow him, we'll be saved. Instead, Jesus was calling this man to do so. Not so this man could earn his salvation, but because this man was guilty of idolatry. In the other Gospels it says, this man goes away sad because he had much wealth. You see, this man, he was really good at a lot of the laws, a lot of those morals he was really good at, at least in his own mind. And yet, he loved his wealth over God. It was an idol in his life. This man felt puffed up. He felt like he was good enough. Oh yes, I'm going to make it. And then Jesus poked him right in the heart and said, what about this dark spot 
here? What about this little bit of idolatry in your heart? And the man went away sad. He realizes, I'm the best person I know. And I'm not good enough. And that was Jesus' point. You see, this man had a false hope. A false hope in his morality. And so Jesus set him straight. Here's the last false hope of today. When we trust in spiritual experiences. When we trust in spiritual experiences. For the Jews it was circumcision. The sign that they belonged to God. For Christians it can be baptism. Or taking communion. Or even praying the sinner's prayer. These can all be great things. And yet these external signs, they mean nothing if not accompanied by an internal heart. So, if a man is baptized, does that mean he is saved? Not necessarily. If a man has a vision from God in a dream, does that mean that he's saved? Not necessarily. If a man is moved to tears during a worship song, does that mean that he's saved? Not necessarily. Let me close with this. You can believe in God. You can have the Bible memorized. You can be extremely moral. And you can be baptized. And yet still not go to heaven. In other words, you can be very, very, very religious. And still go to hell. You see, this is called self-righteousness. Your last fill in the blank. Self-righteousness means trusting in my works to get to heaven. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The word literally means bloody rags. When we trust in any of these false hopes, we fall so desperately short of God's standard of perfection. It's like trying to get into heaven by doing all of these works and saying, all right, God, am I I clean enough? Did I make it? And God says, it's bloody rags. You're not even close to being clean enough. We're never going to make it in our own works. You see, being religious cannot save us. We're all guilty. We all deserve hell. Jesus is our only hope. He's the only way of salvation. That's why it's so important that when Jesus came down to the earth, He lived a perfect life, never having sinned so that he didn't fall under the same condemnation you and I are under. He lived a sinless life, and yet, he died on the cross, though he was innocent, taking our punishment upon himself. And when he resurrected from the dead three days later, he showed that he had conquered sin and conquered death. The reason Jesus is the only one that can save is because he's the only one that's paid our debt, and live the perfect life on our behalf. And so when you and I look at our own sin, 
and recognize we're guilty. And then we look to Jesus and recognize that though we're guilty, He loved us enough to suffer and die in our place. We simply look to Him and say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Lord, fill me with Your Holy Spirit. God, change me from the inside out. And God, take me to heaven on the day that I die. Not because I'm good enough, but God, because you did all the work for me. Because you were that good and you were that loving. You see, when we do that, Jesus takes his robes of righteousness. They're not bloody like ours. And he clothes you and me with his own righteousness. So that when God looks at us, who have put our faith in Jesus, He looks at you and me, He says, you're perfect. Though we still struggle, we're perfect. Because Jesus' gift of salvation was complete. And it paid for the sins of all of us, past, present, and future. And so the difference isn't, well... I was religious and I was good enough, so that's how I'm going to get into heaven. No, the difference is, have you trusted in Jesus and His work? If not, I invite you to do so today. It's the only way to be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You love us so much that You are willing to give Your Son to suffer and die in our place. God, we thank You that You are just, that You will not let sin go unpunished, but at the same time, Lord, You are called the justifier because, God, You've taken our sins and You've paid for them and You can make us justified. You can make us righteous in Your sight. Lord, for anybody here today or listening online that has not yet trusted in You, God, they've been trusting in their morality. They've been trusting in their knowledge of the Word. They've been trusting in, well, I'm, I'm good enough. God, I pray that they would get rid of that false hope. God, that we would all trust in You and You alone for salvation. God, that we would turn away from trying to do everything in our own strength and we would simply look to You and say, God, I can't, I'm broken. God, would you take me as I am? And Lord, thank you that you do. Thank you that you fill us with your spirit. God, thank you that you save us based on your goodness, not our own. Lord, would you set us free from religion? And God, would you welcome us into a relationship with you? God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship together.